We'll turn to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 9, and we shall read from verse 13. Revelation, chapter 9, verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire, and of jackness and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire, and by the smoke, and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. May God bless to us again this reading of his holy word. We have been considering these terrible plagues in the first part of the chapter 9 that are even more severe and more devastating than those referred to in chapter 8. And uh, now we come to the Second part of chapter 9, where the severity of God's judgments are even greater. And of course, this is to be expected since the angel has cried out in chapter 8 before the introduction of these particular plagues, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, those who inhabit the earth, north, south, east, or west, the inhabitants of the earth. Now, as we said last week, those uh, who were the true people of God had been sealed previously, preparation had been made for these terrible onslaughts from the powers of darkness. And yet, they cannot escape out from and be entirely uh, preserved from the effects or the uh, impact of these judgments. The inhabitants are warned, woe, 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 these times will be terrible. And these times, of course, are ordained of God. They result because of the execution of the sovereign purpose of the occupant of the throne that John has seen previously. And we must never take our eyes from that throne. These very plagues are because he reigns, the Lord reigns, and he is doing his will in the army of heaven. 
And we see this, and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And just as God demonstrated his mighty power and got glory to his name when he delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt and then drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Deliverance and judgment, protection and destruction both manifested the mighty glory of God. And that's what we see here in Revelation, the saving and protection of the people of God while judgments fall upon the persecutors of the church and the ungodly. Now here in the 30, we read verse 12 of chapter 9, One woe is past, and behold, there are two woes more hereafter. Now that is a significant statement. One woe is past, and those who had survived that first woe might be thinking, things can't possibly get any worse. We couldn't expect or experience judgments any worse than what we've already experienced. But there's only one woe past. Behold, there come two more hereafter. There is more to come. God is not bound. God is not limited. And there is more to come. And you would imagine that men that would be informed of such solemnities would be turning hastily to the Lord. But what we find is this. The severest judgments will be ignored and in fact will be defied by wicked men. We are told in verse 13 of chapter 9, And the sixth angel sounded. We're introduced now to the events that are to follow the first woe. And what do we hear when the sixth angel sounded? I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. I heard a voice. John has heard several voices thus far. But here is a voice and we're told where it comes from. It is a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. The altar of incense. We are taken back then to uh, the uh, same altar that we have in chapter 8. The angel having a golden censer offered up the uh, incense with the prayers of all the saints. And we're back at that altar. And you will see that the prayers connected with that altar are focused upon here uh, once again for the third time. But here it is different. I heard a voice from the horns of the golden altar. Not from the altar as a piece of furnishing in the tabernacle as such, the altar that was before God, the golden altar, but specifically, John says, it was coming from the four horns of the altar. 
Now that has its own significance. You go back to the Old Testament, for example, to Leviticus 4 and other places, but very clearly in Leviticus 4, Moses had to take a Aaron. They had to take blood. The blood, of course, was typical. Typical of the blood needed to atone for sin. And the blood was taken, and after it was used to sprinkle, the rest of it was poured out, and then the sacrifice was taken out and burned outside. But the blood was sprinkled upon the four horns of the altar. It was sprinkled upon them, and what did it represent? The blood that speaketh better things than that of Abel's. It represented, it typified the speaking blood. You remember whenever Cain slew Abel, God said, the blood of your brother Cain is speaking. He may be dead, but his blood is crying unto me. And the blood that was upon the horns of the altar was speaking blood. And here we see when the angel sounded, I heard a voice, he says, from the four horns. The blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of evils. That blood is now heard crying and calling out in heaven. It is not now merely the prayers of the saints mingled with the incense of the Redeemer, but it is his very own blood that cries out. The blood that men are trampling under their feet. The punishment that the apostle refers to as the more sore punishment, that punishment is now about to descend on the inhabitants of the earth. And it is because a despised and a rejected Christ is being still despised and his blood is being trampled under men's feet. That is a most solemn thing and any unconverted person reading this chapter ought to tremble because of what we see. And we see the judgments that come because Christ is exalted and yet his throne is despised and his blood is being trampled upon. When this voice is heard, what happens? The the voice says to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now, of course, we read many, many times throughout Scripture of the river Euphrates. At the very beginning, where man was put in the garden, there were four rivers mentioned. The name of the river Euphrates appears right there, and we see it again and again appearing throughout Scripture in various settings. John knew that that river had certain significance historically because that river stood between uh, the nation and the land of Israel and the northern hordes. Uh, You find that all the mighty powers that came and invaded uh, Judah and Israel and took the people captives, they were always north. And God would, through the prophets, warn them of the powers that would come from the north, the powers that would be sent 
in judgment. And here we are told there are uh, four angels and they are to be let loose. They are to be released. They are to be released as they are presently held in the great river Euphrates. Now, of course, we're dealing with types here, so we have to be careful that we don't imagine it is necessary that we find some symbolic truth in every word. But what we should note is this, that God is now ordering the removing of restraint. He's removing the restraint. Loose the four angels which are bound. Loose the four angels which are bound. And that tells us what kind of angels they truly are. If you go with me over to Second Peter, you will see there in chapter 2, the verse for God spared not the angels uh, that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. He reserved them, they're cast down, but they're not just cast down to do whatever they like, and they would certainly engage in every form of evil, but they are delivered into chains. They are held bound. In the book of Jude, you have there again the uh, bound angels mentioned in Jude verse 6, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation he hath reserved an everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So what kind of angels are these? These are angels that up until this point are bound. They just cannot do as they like. They have the capacity, the capability of doing all kinds of wickedness. But here the order is given. Release them. Give them freedom. Liberate them to now engage in the kind of activity they would naturally desire to be involved in. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men. They are sent forth to slaughter. They are sent forth to destroy men. Now, we've already noted the plagues, the judgments that were inflicted upon men by these locusts. But now we move to another ghastly creature, even worse and with a greater power to inflict uh, death and judgment than even the locusts. Here the angels are loosed for an hour and a day, and a month, and a year. Now, there are all kinds of interpretations as to how this time is to be calculated, whether each angel was uh, released or liberated to function for an hour and another for a day and another for a year and so on, And others are of a mind, it is a time of one year and a month and a day and an hour, a specific time. 
Others are of a mind that it is just a limited time. But one thing is absolutely clear, the very way in which John records the events as he sees them is this, the precision with which the glorious king of Zion controls all events. He doesn't release these evil angels, just get on with it, do your dastardly work, slay as many as you like, do all the damage you can, destroy as many as you can know. There is a precision about the order and a limitation put upon the time. It is clear that heaven's order is precise and that the king who rules and reigns from the throne has absolutely everything under perfect control. And when they are loosed, what happens then? They are released to slay a third part of men. Now you see again the mention of the third part. Chapter 8, we referred to this, the constant repetition of the third part, third part of the trees, third part of the sea, and uh, third part of the sun, and so on. Here it is, the third part of men. It is really now the judgments of God that have been warning for so long and have been ignored. Now they are really coming home to men themselves. God is dealing with men. As they are slain, their eternal destiny is being sealed forever. And yet God puts a limit. Everyone could be slain, but they're not. You imagine these angels, are there any they wouldn't desire to slay? Are there any that don't deserve to be slain? Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are under condemnation. And yet God in Christ puts a a constraint upon these, even these evil angels that are so powerful in their destructive ability, yet a third. In God's wrath, He is remembering mercy. Now then we're told that the number of the army of the horsemen, this is an army, an army of satanic, evil, angelic hosts, an army of horsemen that were a number 200,000,000. And in case it would seem incredible, John says, I heard the number. I couldn't count them. I couldn't number the great hosts beyond me. But I heard the number. I was told the number. And here you see the great forces of darkness moving out now into the society of men. And look how they're described. John says, Thus I saw the horses in the vision. This massive host of horses. Not 
locusts now, but horses, war horses. I saw the host and they that, them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jackneth and brimstone and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. You see, as we described the locusts, uh, the uh, way in which John describes them is a clear indication these were not normal, natural uh, creatures. And it is the same when we come to these horses. They have heads uh, that are not natural to a horse, but rather the heads of lions. They have the fierceness, the ferocity of the lion and the swiftness of the horse, and they are prepared for battle. And we are told, out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. You have probably heard at times, people very often don't even realize that they are actually making reference to biblical realities. You'll hear people say, in a given situation, men who'd been perhaps through the First World War, the Second World War, and they would say it was like, it was like hell upon earth. Or they might say, all hell was let loose. Not realizing what they were saying, but here's what John was saying. Here it is, agents of darkness, spirits that are satanic, mighty hosts intent on nothing else but evil and destruction, and they are released out into human society. Now that is little wonder then, that the angels should say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You remember when the Savior was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, if you go back to the Gospel according to Luke, and chapter 22, we have this fact recorded by Luke, verse 3 of Luke 22, then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the, of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the high priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. Did he not know who the Savior was. Did he not know what he was going to do? Jesus, as John records it, said to him, what thou doest, do quickly. Go and do it quickly, John, or, or, or Judas. Now look at what we're told. Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. Judas, in certain ways, was no different to any of the other disciples. He was as human as they. He followed Christ. He preached with the other disciples. He saw the miracles. He heard the parables. He knew the truth. He was one of the closest of the human race to Jesus Christ. You imagine Judas in a lost eternity. If we could enter the darkness and the torments 
We could question Judas. Judas, did you ever actually meet Jesus? Of course I did. I listened to him constantly. I worked for him. I associated with him. I bought the food for him. I took care of many of the practical matters relating to Jesus' ministry. What made you follow him, Judas? Well, I believed that he was the Messiah. And I had great expectations regarding him. In fact, after I betrayed him, I didn't think they would be able to capture him. I didn't think they'd be able to condemn him. And it wasn't until I saw that he was condemned that then I come to the conclusion I have betrayed innocent blood. Judas Iscariot, one of the closest to Jesus Christ in the whole human race, then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot. In the uh, chapter 13 of John, you have there the Savior uh, in verse 27 of John 13, Satan entered into him, then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. But you go back to verse 2 of this same chapter, And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Satan so put it into his heart. He convinced him, do it, Judas. Whatever you do, Judas, don't turn back from this dastardly deed. Now you just imagine the little group of the disciples sitting around with Jesus. The Passover. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, did they all turn to Judas? Did they see in Judas the expression of determined evil? Satan has entered into him. He's going to start looking like Satan. He's going to have something about his countenance that will be remarkably different to what he was. How we will know him. How we will be able to say, well, something has happened to Judas Iscariot. Something's changed. The devil has taken possession of him. They were saying, is it I? Is it I? Satan had entered into him did he suddenly appear something totally different? He just looked like Judas did the day before. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he reminds the Corinthians in the second epistle that he writes to them in chapter 11. He tells us that false prophets and deceitful workers are capable of transforming themselves into the very apostles of Christ. The very apostles of Christ. They'll speak in his name. They'll claim to speak for him. No marvel. Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Maybe for all we know. Judas had even a brighter countenance than previous. Satan had entered into him. And Satan could appear as an angel of light. 
And here we are told, verse 15 of Second Corinthians 11, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. Now I draw attention to these portions of truth for this reason. That these satanic hordes that are released, these mighty, fearful, dreadful, satanic powers and influences released into human society to destroy. How would you recognize them? Would you be able to go around the streets of Grafton and come home and say to your family, you know, I met one of the devil's angels today. I was down the street and it was so clear to me. He looked every bit a devil. She looked every bit one of the devil's agents. There was no mistake. I'm not saying that's Not possible, it may be in certain cases. What you and I have to learn from God's word is this. That Satan's forces don't go around with a sign up. I have just come out of hell and darkness to destroy souls. That doesn't happen. And the church is asleep doesn't seem to have wakened up yet to the fact that in our society at work and at work presently are the very destructive forces that here John is privileged to see. The church has been marked, the saints of God have been sealed They will be protected, but nevertheless, they have to live in a society and work in a society where these powers are active. Now, look what happens. And uh, it is, perhaps it is useful to go back to the first book of Kings. Uh, You see... Everything that happened with John, he would interpret it, he would, he would understand it in the light of what he knew was in the Old Testament scriptures. Those were the only scriptures, in fact, he had. And uh, you see, when you go back to the, uh, I should have said the second book of Kings rather than the first book, second Kings, Uh, in the experience of Elijah and Elisha. In the second book of Kings, in the chapter 2, Elijah is to be taken up into heaven. Now, how does that happen? Second Kings 2, verse 11, it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, no matter how men try to explain it or try to explain it away, this is the record of God's word. That these chariots and horses of fire appeared to carry Elijah into heaven. They were no ordinary horses, nor were they ordinary material chariots. They had come from heaven to return to heaven. They were part of the Lord's mighty hosts. And they are, of course, Uh, sent out to bring Elijah, the prophet of God, into the presence of God. Again, in the chapter 6 of 2 
kings, Elisha, who is now taking the role of Elijah, the mantle of Elijah has fallen on Elisha, and he finds himself in a great streets, a terrible situation when he is surrounded by enemy troops. In verse 15, his servant began to panic. Verse 15 of Second Kings 6, when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? We haven't a hope, we haven't a chance. He answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And what happens then? And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now you have to understand that John, when he's seeing these visions, already he has been instructed in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Jesus said plainly, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. And John would have all this background knowledge and information so that when in his vision he sees this great host of horses uh, with heads of lions and uh, they are those who uh, are able with power to destroy men. It wouldn't have been a surprise to John. It wouldn't have shocked him. He would have known perfectly well God has his mighty hosts and he can release them to fulfill his purpose at any time, whether they be the hosts of good or the hosts that are satanic, he can release them at any time. You know, of course, we shall come to it, war in heaven. Michael and his angels are warring against Satan and his angels. There is this clash of these heavenly hosts until Satan is cast out. But notice... Why they are sent, we've noticed already that it is in response to the cry from the horns of the altar. It is because of the cry of the blood that was shed to atone for sin. The blood that is being trampled upon is crying out in heaven. And if you happen to be here today and you're trampling in that blood, be warned. If you despise Christ's blood and you trample his atonement under your feet, you be sure of this, that blood is going to cry out against you someday if you do not repent. And it is crying out here. And if men think there's no such punishment reserved as God describes as is experienced in that place called hell. Well, God warns through these very experiences men get a little foretaste they get a little taste of what it will be like. And here we're told of these terrible, heinous creatures that are not of this world. 
but they're in it. And we're told by these verse 18, by these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their teals, for their teals were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. What capabilities these creatures truly have. Now you look back throughout history, and I thought with my limited knowledge of the goings-on in this very community and in this Clarence Valley area. Those who are godless and those who are Christless need to be warned, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, and when you think of the sins that are not only committed, but condoned and encouraged in this very community, when you look back, you think of what happened when these same sins were committed in the past, How did God react? You go back to the days of of Noah. What are we told? Violence filled the earth. Violence filled the earth. What about the violence? Is it just a little isolated pocket of violence here and there? Violence fills the earth presently. And the sins of men were wicked. Men had become wicked and their sins were mounting to heaven and God was provoked for he didn't create man to do that or be like that. And God poured out his wrath in the flood. But then he promised he wouldn't do that again. He had a covenant that he wouldn't do it. But then we come to Sodom and Gomorrah. What kind of sins were being committed in Sodom and Gomorrah? And God reigned. He reigned from heaven. What do we find he reigned? Fire and brimstone. There's no fire or brimstone on earth. Like the fire and the brimstone that God poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Lot looked out on the morning after the terrible event, the smoke was still ascending to heaven, testifying to the total destruction. And men think God just sits there at ease. Lands that have had the gospel Peoples that have had the gospel preached to them. They've been brought up with the Bible, the word of God. Warning against, condemning the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet they're committed in this very community. And the very sins are brought into, as you heard last week, the very cathedral. In this community, do you think, my friend, that God sits and looks on unperturbed, undisturbed, and not bothered in the slightest, get on with it? You look at the plagues that were sent to Egypt, what was going on in Egypt. The sorcerers, the very kind of conduct we see at the end of this chapter. And witchcraft and all the other sins that were bound up with heathenism, and God sent us plagues, and he judged them, and he slew the army 
of Pharaoh. And then again, you could move on to the Canaanites. It is interesting to see that when God told Abraham he was going to give his descendants a land that they could go in and possess, God didn't say they would go in immediately and possess them. God said instead that he would wait patiently because uh, the uh, sins of the land hadn't yet reached their height. And God said, I'm waiting. And when the time has come down to the very hour, then I will open out my judgments. When the Canaanites, when their sins have reached a height, then I will pour my judgments upon them. And you can go through uh, the history of men and Israel and Judah, Ahab and uh, Jezebel, the sins that Jezebel was uh, encouraging, slaying the prophets of the Lord, uh, feeding the false prophets, filling the land with idolatry, the altars of the Lord broken down. What did God do? He sent a famine. He sent drought for three years. How terrible dark we are. I was just looking at adverts. The cry is to help presently the poor drought-stricken farmers in New South Wales. And of course, with my farming background, I naturally feel a sympathy and have tried to contribute. But when I see how they're intending to raise funds, they're going to have a golfing competition in the Lord's Day somewhere. They're going to have something else somewhere, the Lord's Day. There doesn't seem to be any recognition of God, no concept whatever. God is in control, and he has, for a purpose, sent a drought. And from the beginning of history, God has been sending droughts to men and upon nations. And there's nothing strange, nothing peculiar that he should do it now. Do we think, well, we're so clever in the 21st century. Well, God doesn't do that kind of thing anymore. God still possesses that exact same power. And the very hatred of sin that provoked God to do these things in the past provokes him equally uh, as much today. Do we imagine somehow or other that God has become almost immune? After all, he's been a witness to man's behavior and man's conduct for centuries and millenniums, he can't be surprised if he sees the sins repeated again and again. And therefore, he must know that nothing can stop it. This is just part of human nature expressing itself. God, my friend, declares himself to be a holy God and a God of justice. And when you see what goes on, we don't have to go out beyond the Clarence Valley to see what goes on, the immorality, the dishonesty, the corruption, everywhere, politically, socially, everywhere. Even the... You, you, 
you open the local papers, not that I read them anyway, but occasionally I, I see these uh, sex workers now openly, blatantly advertising themselves and their services. A brothel approved and opened in a place like Grafton. What do we think God's going to do? Do we think God's just going to sit back and let it just happen? The problem is the professing church has lost touch with the God of Scripture. And even in our prayers, we don't even pray the way we ought to. And you'll forgive me for saying that, but we don't. You go back with me to the uh, book of Psalms, and right, well, you can go right through the whole book of Psalms, but we'll just look at one or two of them, the first Psalm, uh, Psalm 5. And there you have the language of the psalmist. Psalm 5, verse 10, just for the sake of time. Destroy thou them, O God, Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. Was this an inspired prayer, do you think? Or perhaps we might think, well, that's an Old Testament prayer. You don't approach God and pray that way anymore. Here is the psalmist praying against those who are in rebellion. They are defying God. They are in rebellion against God. In the psalm that we sang from Earlier, Psalm 10, or we haven't sang from it yet, we intend to. Psalm 10, verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand, forget not the humble. Verse 15, Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. Deal with this wickedness. Seek out and expose these wicked men. In the Psalm 35, you have there again from the very beginning of the Psalm. Here's the psalmist, plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me. Uh, Fight against them that fight against me. Uh, Look at Verse 5, let them be as chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. What was happening in Revelation 9? These angels are sent forth to deal with the wicked and the rebellious. Why was it? Because the cries of the saints and the cries of the shed blood were crying out that God would deal with these wicked oppressors and persecutors of the church. Verse 6 again of Psalm 35. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord persecute them. We could go through many other of the Psalms and you'll see the godly again and again observing the wicked and the rebellion against God, their defiance of God. What way did they pray? They prayed that God would deal with them. I wonder how often we come to God 
really praying, earnestly praying, here is this wicked, evil man and agent of the kingdom of darkness, destroying souls. God, arise for the sake of thy glory, for the sake of the poor church, for the sake of deluded souls that are being led astray. Cast him down. Destroy his works. Silence him. We almost seem to think that's very extreme. Well, the saints... And the Old Testament prayed that way. And when we come to the book of the Revelation, they're still praying that way. Now as they pray, these forces are released to destroy men. We're told, verse 20, the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues. Now whether they be Uh, plagues of literal war or whatever, they are most certainly destructive plagues with power to slay men, but not all. A third, so you imagine. This is a solemn, solemn warning. God is demonstrating his power. This is what I can do. And you would expect men will hasten to repent. If you're without Christ, I tell you, my friend, you should tremble lest you harden. Because look at what's here and you've never experienced it. And you might think to yourself, well, if God dealt with me like that, I tell you, I would turn and I would flee for mercy. Yet repent it not. Yet repented not of the works of their hands. They would not give up their, they are so full of their own confidence. We are so intelligent. We are so knowledgeable. Look at what we can produce. Look at what our scientists know. Look at our manufacturing. Look at our technology. Look at our skills. Oh, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to turn to God. We can look after ourselves. We can solve our own problems. Even if it's a drought, we'll somehow or other find a way to relieve ourselves. We don't need God. They repent it not. And they repent it not of their murderers, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. If you go over, you see greater judgments falling later upon men, and yet they simply harden and refuse to repent. They just refuse to repent. This tells us something about the awful state of man's heart. And the only thing that will ever change it is a sovereign, gracious work of God the Holy Spirit. Neither repented thee of their murders or of their sorceries nor of their fornication, and, they w- and so on, and they would not give up the works of their hands. We can look after ourselves. We don't need God. Yes, we're witnesses to his mighty power, his devastating, destructive power. He has released the agents of darkness to smite men. We're still not going to repent. We're still going to defy God. That's the society we're living in. And the great question then is this. Are we among the sealed? 
Are we among those who have the stamp of the blood of atonement upon us? These are the times, I believe, that we're living in right now. John was looking at a power that was released into human society. He doesn't tell us exactly when it was released, nor when it would finally end. But the message is, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of earth, because these things happen on the earth. God deals with men on the earth and he gives them warnings, a little foretest of hell itself and they still won't repent and there's not one penitent soul in a lost eternity this day, not one. How very solemn. We have need of one thing, and that is Christ and his redemption, that the blood would be covering us, not crying out against us. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we pray that thy word would solemnize us, that we would come to that recognition that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do thou bless thy truth to us that we might appreciate the infinite and omnipotent power of God, the creator of the universe, and that we might see the exalted Christ and the awful, awful tragedy of rejecting him or despising his blood. Bless thy truth to us. Pardon us and accept us for Christ's sake. Amen.